Hello, everyone. We have an amazing show for you this week. T Omega creates a wind turbine that looks like a Ferris wheel, and then GE gets an injunction against them by Siemens Gamesa. We talk about electrifying the highways uh, to charge electric vehicles, uh, and with a specific focus on heavy haul trucks. And then finally, we're going to talk about my favorite topic, a small vertical axis wind turbine that looks pretty and doesn't generate any any electricity. Hey, everybody, if you're a frequent listener to this podcast, please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on this podcast platform. It makes a big difference to us, and it allows our podcast to be played in, in new places. And subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Uptime Tech News, which can be found by just Googling Uptime Tech News, and you'll go right to it. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with my good friend and blade expert, Rosemary Barnes, and my good friend from Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxon. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Okay, first up, a Boston startup, T Omega Wind, says it's model tested of a unique floating wind turbine design. So, Rosemary, it looks like two triangles side by side, and in between those triangles is a, a three-bladed wind turbine. So it resembles a sort of a Ferris wheel design. And T Omega is, is interested in this design because they think it takes a lot less materials to build it. It's a lot uh, simpler to build. And you don't have complicated uh, bearing structures to support the spinning winter blades. Uh, the group is out of Northeastern, which is a college in, in Boston. But they're, they're saying like uh, their sweet spots can be like seven to eight megawatts and that the amount of uh, in, sort of energy and cost to build the thing is going to be like a fraction of what it takes to build a seven to eight megawatt turbine right now, just because of the difference in design. They're using simpler design techniques, things that are thinner walls, steel tubes, everything's lighter. It basically just floats on top of the, of the waves. It doesn't have a, a counterweight at the bottom like the standard horizontal axis wind turbines do, uh, but they are getting money. They got funded. And <laughs> pre-show, we were just talking about uh, renewable <laughs> energy companies in Boston getting funded. And this is another one of those. They've received uh, $256,000 from the U.S. National Science Foundation Small Business Technology Transfer, so STTR is what we call it in the United States, uh, for their R&D work and their groundbreaking floating wind turbine. Now, uh, first off, does this make sense, this sort of basic Ferris wheel type design? Uh, I like it structurally. I think they're going to struggle aerodynamically and then the aerodynamic struggles are going to cause structural struggles. So because, you know, normally um, the reason why a normal wind turbine has its rotor upwind of the tower is because every time, if you put it on the other side, the downwind side, then every time that the blade passes the tower, it you know, its wind is interrupted. And so, you know, the, the blade bends away from the wind and then when the wind is all of a sudden removed, then it bends back suddenly and then, you know, so you've got this every single time that a blade passes the tower, it's all of a sudden flicking back and forth. And that's really, really um, challenging um, to, to deal with. And so 
Um, yeah, like back in the 90s, plenty of people had downwind rotors because there's some advantages to that too. You know, the blades can never hit the tower if, if that's the way you operate it. Um, but pretty much everyone realised that on balance it's a lot easier to get these um, things to survive, especially the blades and the, um, I guess, the bearings as well, to survive if you have the upwind design. So this this doesn't have that. And I, I note that they, they've just done... Um, a lab test or like a wave pool test um, of, uh, you know, something that looks looks fairly similar to the, the drawings that they have uh, shown of, of it out in operation in the open ocean. So they know something, but they definitely don't yet know anything about the, you know, how that dynamic behavior is going to go. So I would definitely um, not put any weight in their cost projections at this point because it's very easy to say your design is going to be cheap when you only know about the advantages and you haven't had a chance to learn about the disadvantages yet and all of the expensive solutions that you have to come up with to get around all of the the problems that come up because you're doing something differently. So early, is, early days. Is it a design and- that's already been looked at already? The basic concept, has it been looked at before? I haven't I haven't seen it but I would struggle mm. to it's it, you know it's not it's not a brainwave it's um you know we we make other things like you mentioned <laughs> Ferris wheel you know there's plenty of of sure. things that we make with that structure so um yeah I would expect that it has been thought of before but I yeah no I've never seen anyone develop it as far as they have Joel is there a real need for a wind turbine that is that less expensive cuz we're talking about 30% of the price of a conventional design and maybe about 20% of the weight. 30% would mean that right now wind turbines are about a million dollars per megawatt, so they'd be at $300,000 per megawatt. That seems artificially low somehow. Is that Does that seem even plausible? Yeah, I think when you start talking who will take the risk on putting these offshore in a grand scale, right? And the, the megawatt numbers you're talking about, is those are onshore numbers as well, right? Offshore. I they're, think they're offshore uh, numbers. Well, the million of megawatts is usually what we look at for onshore. Well, that, that's okay. Yeah, you're totally yeah. right about that. Right, there's not really good published numbers for offshore wind. Exactly. Yet. Exactly. So, yeah. so True. third now, thinking about a new radical way to design something and do something, thirty percent of the cost of the a conventional design. That's enough to get someone to turn ahead, right? To like, oh, thirty percent. Well, that's a big right. change, right? Um, I don't know if it's if they've done enough due diligence uh, in the design to get someone to put enough money in them to go forward. Uh, $256,000 grant sure isn't going to do it, right? 256 grand for uh, R&D level engineering at this is just, an, that's just going to get a couple more engineers, six more months to do some more CAD designs. That's not going to sure. do anything for, for a Yeah, I'd be surprised prototype. if the test that they did in the, the lab test they did, they could, you know, do that, that part of the project for less yeah. than that much money. Ballpark me a number. What do you think it'd take to, to build a seven to eight megawatt machine starting from nothing all in? And install it offshore. Yeah, and Dude, get it offshore. Yeah, Two? fixed, 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 or floating, 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 floating for. Uh, are you talking like complete ground up design to offshore at a seven Hiring eight megawatt? Hiring the janitor to the CEO, getting a company established, getting a building, getting a factory, getting it certified. I guess certified. Five to five to seven hundred million, probably. Oh, I, I think yeah. they're billions. Yeah, in today's so. dollars. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I'd be okay be to work on a on a project like that if they had a, a had a billion, but for much less, I would expect <laughs> them not to succeed. Um, but you don't right. need all that upfront I mean, as well. You know, you you can no, get you a little 
especially if no. they're smart and they, you know, um, de-risk key parts of the technology onshore before they uh, move offshore. Because, I mean, this dynamic loading thing, for example, that's just the, the most obvious technical risk when I look at it. Um, there's no there's no reason to build something and drag it offshore and pay for, you know, ships and stuff every time something goes wrong, probably every half hour <laughs> at first. Um, so I think, you know, if, if you would build a smaller version onshore, then you can make your development a lot cheaper and maybe entice investors to give you more of the, the big numbers that you need to get it offshore. Do do an onshore test, like you're saying, Rosemary, and then uh, have a goal of selling to someone that already exists in the marketplace. I think that's what a lot, in my opinion, that's what a lot of these uh, startups that are coming up with all these new designs should be shooting for. They shouldn't be shooting for, we're going to go and install 10,000 of these, you know, and by 2030, they should say like, by 2025, we'd like to sell this company and this idea to Vestas or Siemens Mm. or whoever. It'll be challenging for them though. It's hard to see how much of it can really be just um, slotted into an existing design. Like you would need to redesign, obviously, uh, I don't know. Now you've got to Everything. have two attachment points. So yeah, your whole nacelle hub, um, all the bearings, and then the blade structure, like the aerodynamic design for the blade, might be able to be similar, but um, the structure of the the blade will have to be. It's got very different requirements, so uh, it, that won't be the same either. I can't see a lot of reason for an existing OEM to to buy this. I think you would. What do you think does about, need to kind of start from scratch. I'm I'm looking. I'm just watching some of the videos and stuff on my other screen here of them, and I'm thinking about some of the like CFD analysis things that I've worked on in um, offshore subsea things. So now I'm looking at instead of having one tower. Of course, when we have one tower, normally it's always a cylindrical tower, and that's it, or close to it, right? Um, and there's not a whole lot that you can do to uh, curtail like vivs, like vortex-induced vibration or anything. Like you can't really add things to it to make it aerodynamically so the wind will flow around it. Right. But with what with four with four pillars on this design they have, it almost seems like you might have more flexibility to make those pillars more aerodynamically uh, neutral oh. so that it wouldn't affect the the wake of – or not the wake, but the, the pressure of the, when the blades come – I'm not saying this correctly. Make them into an airfoil, basically. Yeah, make the make the struts into an airfoil so that they're aerodynamically neutral, so it doesn't affect the loads on the blades as they come around. Is that, Apparently, they're is that square. Doable with this if design, you, if you look at yeah, the, that's the what, square cross section, that's, that's, so that's kind of what. Yeah, they haven't they haven't had that. They haven't got as far in their thinking as you have on on that problem. But um, yeah. that's that's okay. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's early days, and they're they're trying it out. It's cool. It's um, it's fine. The cost projections, though, I mean, just because you can reduce mass to 30% does not mean you reduce cost. It's, I mean, you're reducing mass from the, the tower and the, you know, the floating structure. So I don't right. think that you can, <laughs> you can really extrapolate that to be a whole of system um, cost reduction. I mean, you're still going to need the, the generator is not going to be any cheaper. The blades will be more expensive. The um, control system will still cost the same. Power connection will still cost the same. Like you, you know, it's it's nice to use mass as a kind of a substitute for cost in really fixed, specific, isolated sections. Um, you definitely can't do it at a whole of whole of turbine um, level. So I think that's pretty misleading. That even in their their best case, 
you know, I mean, there are cost models out there from NREL and um, Sandia and stuff that you can use if you wanted to get an idea for how much of the cost goes to the tower um, and the floating structure. But it's definitely not going to be a 70% cost reduction just because they've made those components cheaper, um, lighter. I mean, I got a, I've got another one for you, Rosemary's, as I'm watching again, I'm, I'm watching the, the, the GIF image of their uh, pool testing. So now I'm thinking they've said we can withstand a hundred a hundred foot wave uh, in in some of these things, and I think a lot of that's due to the fact that they've lightened up the structure, right? So it can actually float easier. But now when I look at it, and I'm, and I'm thinking seven eight megawatt system, your eighty ninety meter blades. Now you now you've in, introduced a whole bunch of other dynamic loads to this thing because it's the structure's lighter and it can the move like this. Weight. Now the blades are going to be. Whoa, up and down and left and right. And that's uh, those dynamic loads on composite structures, as we all know, are, yeah. could be could be brutal. Uh, they've got a good idea and they've got a lot to learn because they're doing something so different. They can't assume that, mm-hmm. you know, they're not going to have new problems. Uh, they will have brand new problems uh, that goes along with a brand new <laughs> technology. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the more that you deviate from the norm, the more special new problems that you get to experience for the first time. So, uh, yeah, uh, definitely. Wish them good luck and, yeah, they're just at the start of their – well, I guess they're not right at the start, but they're, you know, close to the start, closer to the start than the end of their journey. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. Seamus Camesa got an injunction from a judge that prohibits GE from selling wind turbines with their special bearing support structure that has been patented by Seamus Camesa. That's a big, big problem for GE. So essentially, it shuts them down from sales of offshore wind in the United States until they either... Uh, remove that design or figure out some something contractually with Siemens Gamesa. And it doesn't look like Siemens Gamesa is going to allow them to do that. So the injunction came after a number of months. I think that the, the, the initial court case was sort of settled in the judge came down in June and now they're going back and forth. But the, the, the U.S. district judge uh, Prohibited GE from selling any more of these wind turbines, except for two cases. And I think this is the interesting piece. They're going to allow GE to make wind turbines for vineyard wind and ocean wind. So off the coast of Massachusetts, off the coast of New Jersey. Uh, and they're going to charge GE $30,000 per megawatt per turbine. So for the vineyard wind project, that's about $24 million of a hit financially to GE. So the judge looked at the state's arguments that it's we need these wind turbines because climate change is such a public problem that it overrides Siemens' uh, ownership of this patent. So the, the public interest came above the private interest, which is weird. That doesn't happen very often. So I think it set a new standard, weirdly enough, this one patent case in which, by the way, Siemens is not even using this design. Which is a weird thing. They patent this thing. They're not even using it. GE's using it, evidently. And Siemens isn't even using it. That's one of the arguments GE is using. Like, why are you sticking us? And Siemens isn't even using the thing. Uh, 
but it creates a, a new standard that the public's uh, the public impact of a design not being used may override the the patent holder's ownership. Ooh, that doesn't feel right. Uh, and, and maybe maybe it's a little more nuanced than that. I know Siemens was had said earlier that they were willing to let GE build these two site wind turbines because really, what are you going to do? You look like the bad bad guy if you do that. Uh, but GE's going to appeal. GE's, GE's saying they're going to appeal that decision and see if they can get it back to uh, basically try to get it back to, to zero again to say they didn't infringe. I'm not sure they're going to be able to do that. It's going to be really hard to do. And you may have to take that all the way up to the Supreme Court if you really want to fight this thing out. So two big things, right? You got this uh, legal framework now in which the public interest can override a patent holder's interest. And GE is going to be essentially off of the playing field in U.S. offshore wind until they can redesign this this bearing uh, support, which would at least knock them back three, four years, I'm guessing, to, to get that all undone and redesigned and put back in. So that's when all the action is happening in the United States. This is a huge impact for GE, unless something has been going on behind the scenes where GE has been redesigning this thing while they're in court. I doubt that's the case. Rosemary, you worked with GE for a number of years. How big of a injunction, how big of this is this injunction in, in terms of GE uh, you know, renewable business. Uh, I mean, definitely if they can't <laughs> can't sell this product moving forward, that's a huge, huge big deal because, you know, so far um, the Halliad project has, you know, primarily cost them money and they haven't yet got to the, the part where, you know, they're selling a lot of them and they recoup that. So that would be devastating for them, I would imagine. Um, and it would take, I, I don't, if they knew about this at the start, they would never have designed it like that. It would have been fine. The turbine sure. would have ended up roughly the same cost, probably exactly the same cost, no problem. But to start again is going to be quite hard um, or it's going to be expensive and possibly time consuming. So that's bad. But I think that the impact, it sounds like, extends far beyond just GE because if, um, yeah, if, if, uh, all of these big wind turbine manufacturers and any other company that, you know, has a lot of, um, you know, know-how, intellectual property that's part of the value of their company, they, they all have a, you know, a strategy for developing IP. And it, it, I definitely I had things uh, of, you know, ideas of mine patented or, you know, apply for patent applications um, that we never intended to use that I thought was you know stupid idea and I would never do it that way because we'd found a better one but they go through to the effort and the expense of patenting them anyway be, be, precisely for this kind of outcome that you know you well you've had the idea you've developed the the IP you know about it we might as well get a patent on it and if somebody else does it then we can earn some money that way and they do they get royalty royalty payments for sure. you know a, a few good ideas um, so if they're really going to just say, well, it doesn't matter that Siemens Gamesa rightfully owns the IP because the public really wants it, um, th that would render everybody's strategy incorrect. And uh, I mean, you've got to change the law. You can't just, you can't just decide not to enforce it. Can, can you? Uh, it just seems really out there to me, even though I can see that it's better for the, the planet and the public and everything. Yeah. But um, you're also, I think they should change the law. Really a, 
first and, well, yeah, then, Rosemary. and then start that, implementing is, the new law. <laughs> yeah. Is it really a valid argument? Is it's is who's it protecting? Is it it's not really protecting GE as much as it's protecting Vineyard Wind and Orsted at an ocean wind. That's who it's protecting. Because they're the ones who are really at risk. If GE doesn't sell a turbine it theoretically had a booking for, okay. Right. Those those wind turbines are kind of in process, so they haven't expended all the money. Who it's really protecting are the operators in this scenario, right? Yeah, but the operators should have a clause in their contract that says force majeure. We're putting in, you know, Siemens uh, like a, a eleven megawatts, two hundred dDs or something. You right. know, like they'll have right. that in hey. there. Joel, Joel, you're right about that. I think the issue with that is that you have to go back and redo your applications again with the federal government oh, yeah, and sure, get, yeah. go through the evaluation again, which is one of the initial uh, constraints when you make an application and you're actually uh, mm-hmm. applying for to, to bid on the lease is that you have to define all that stuff up front and you get initial blessing on it. Yeah, we're going to use GE turbines. Okay, fine. I'm not sure why that matters. Is yeah. there really, Rosemary, is there any real difference or Joel, is there any real difference between the turbines? Why should it matter? Oh, they'll be a dramatically different size. Um, so I think it, it does matter, but I mean, they're going to go smaller and yeah, uh, it matters. I don't think it matters that much. I'm just surprised that they can't, yeah. um, I would have thought a compromise on the royalty payments to something manageable would be the right course of action. And yeah, I mean, there's plenty of, OEMs paying other OEMs royalties for design aspects yes. that they, they want to use. Uh, I, sure. I would like to see <laughs> Siemens, Camisa and GE reach reach something like that here. And I'm surprised that they can't because it's not it's not something critical that's going to, you know, it's not an insurmountable obstacle to find a new way to, you know, design around this patent. Um, sure. So Siemens Gamesa should be, I would have thought, interested in, you know, trying to make the royalty payment that they'll accept low enough that GE are willing to pay it for the, you know, the amount mm. of time that they uh, it takes them to to redevelop, you know, the next version. But maybe their it's, plan is to just bankrupt GE, make sure that they never sell another offshore wind turbine. And in that case, that would yeah. be very sad because there aren't that many of them, of these big ones out there. There are so many gigawatts of offshore wind turbines in the pipeline all around the world. Um, you know, there's a few, there's a few other uh, manufacturers with similar designs, but they're, you know, they're far, far behind, um, you know, the 14, 15, 16 megawatt turbines from other manufacturers are, are behind the GE one. So, um, yeah, it'll be bad for the planet if, if they can't reach an agreement. Well, I'm thinking where, where it comes to is really it's, there would be a political nightmare if it, if they didn't let these two wind farms go forward with these. So the odd thing to me yes. is that they're going to let two, they're going to let two of them, but then stop it after that. That to me shouts politics. Because as we have just laid out this 30 gigawatt goal by 2030 offshore wind, and then the first wind farms are at scale that you're going to put in, there's a huge problem with and they get delayed years. That would be a political travesty, right? It would be, it would be a nightmare. So like in the U.S., the, the, we regularly use the term eminent domain, right, for what's better for the public can take from the private. But usually that's reserved. That's not reserved for IP or anything like that. That's usually reserved for like, you know, a, a cutting a corner on a highway and we got to take a little bit of land from a farmer right. or something of, the, of that it's sort. It's a government but use it, thing. Right. But private. it can't. It, right. But it, it can. But you, it can be eminent domain can be used privately as well. It has been. Yeah. 
Yeah, because I was I was on a project once a while back where we took we took a whole neighborhood to expand a runway at O'Hare Airport. That's not government, mm-hmm. right? So this is the same True. thing. Is what what's in what's in better? Yeah, security. It sort of is. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. nebulous. It's kind of yeah, yeah. Not well defined. But 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 what's in the better better interest of the public? I think if you really weigh it, it's the political play of man. The first wind farm we have a huge problem on, and we can't move forward with it. Well, that's 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 tough, right? But I mean, but it, I just gotta. You see where Siemens Gamesa is coming from, and up 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 play the Siemens Gamesa part of this is, is yeah. hey, it's a really tough marketplace right now. We're not making a lot of money. Offshore mm-hmm. is a potential huge growth market. Mm-hmm. If I can eliminate one of the players in one of the wealthiest markets in the world, I will probably do that. And if it's only well, yeah. a two to three year delta in which Slow the GE is going to be behind, I'll make all of my money then and yep. well, be happy with it. So yes, I, I, I will stick it to GE and I will look like the bad guy I'll give them a little bit of a break so I don't cause a political problem with the administration at the moment, which is what they did, and then just sit back and take the orders. And but you think about if you're, that, that exactly what happened. Now put yeah. now step into the developer shoes. Uh, right. On Tuesday, on Tuesday at Sunrise Wind Farm, they just sold 84 11 gigawatt offshore. Uh, uh, turbines, right? So the yeah. orders will roll in because anybody that's like, oh, we're thinking between GE and Vestas, or we're thinking between GE and Siemens. Well, sorry, GE's off the table now because right. that's too too risky. Right. And one of the constraints of the injunction is when GE talks to a potential customer, they must provide the potential customer a copy of the injunction. Ouch. So they're they're, they're perp walking GE in front yeah, of every that's customer. Brutal. That's, that's brutal. brutal. Like, come yeah. on, you can't Google that. Do I? Do you need yeah. GE to do that? Really? Yeah. Come on. That I wouldn't want to be feel, a sales guy for right. GE. No. No. Right? Because you know they have to do this thing, right? And mm-hmm. the, 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 the customers know they have to do it too. It just that to me seems more of a shaming event than anything legal wise. Come on. Do you That's think crazy. that do you think that they took it this far or that it's come to what it is? Because I think originally wasn't this like GE had sued Siemens Gamesa? Yeah, yeah. They and then Siemens Gamesa was like, we're like, you know what? No, like we're gonna come back and sue you for this. Yeah. Like, there was some true. there was something beforehand that played in there. So that's kind of like a tit for tat kind of thing. But this as Rosemary has pointed out, the public's interest in this is weirdly at the forefront. And it will change the way courts think about these things if it, if i had made a knickknack uh i patented a, a new whiz bang pencil if someone stole it from me the best thing i'm going to do is to get them to stop right and they're not gonna they're not gonna work out some agreement for the public interest this is not the thing they will ne- the courts will never do yeah. that but this is you touch the third rail of politics right now which is Renewable energy in an inflationary economy, and 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 a constraint where the president has made made promises. That's a tough one for yeah. anybody to be in the middle of. And, and GE is knows full well what the ramifications of those things are. I just don't know if it's going to come to a conclusion. And maybe this is the Siemens play: is there's only a certain amount of time here. You got till twenty thirty. So a couple of years at a head start will make a huge difference. So you can be a bad guy for 12 months, maybe mm-hmm. two years, and then, oh, okay, no, 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 GE, you can use it. 
Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, we'll charge you a hundred, a hundred grand for the license and off you go. They could do that too. And so there's a lot of give and take and nuance. And that's where it's going to get really combative because I think GE is willing to go to the map because it's such a huge profit center for them. And it's in their backyard that they have to, that they have mm-hmm. to fight it. And they should, in my opinion, they should fight it to see if you can get to Rosemary's position, which is some sort of mutual agreement and a payment so they can move on. Cause I think GE has been playing the send me, send me some money and we'll, we're, we're cool game for a long time. But Siemens is not playing that. Not yet. Yeah, we should track and kind of watch as these uh, all the all the lease sales have happened. What kind of orders yeah. start flowing in and just kind of start putting that information together so we can watch down the coast what it looks like. Right. I, I'm interested. Vest, Vestas has to be licking their chops too. Oh, V2, sure. V264 is as, as far as the yeah. eye can see. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think the the – and then the political landscape again, because this energy is politics, the constraint that the administration put on itself where they're trying to have more American uh, components in the wind turbines, for sure, and manufacturing in the United States. That one's going to be hard when there's they're all non-U.S. companies that are involved on the, on the offshore wind. Mm-hmm. That one's going to be hard to swallow, right? So you would think that the you would think, this is my opinion, I think that the administration would be involved somewhere in the negotiation here, much like they're negotiating with the, the train unions and the longshoremen right now. You'd mm-hmm. think that they'd be at the table saying, all right, hey, Siemens, why don't you come to the White House? Hey, GE, why don't you come to the White House? And we're going to negotiate this thing out, everybody. Yeah, was it, and we're going wasn't to come it out a, smiling. Was it Obama who did like the, the beer summit or whatever it was? Yes. I think, I, think, I, think, I think that was me. Yeah. Like, <laughs> come on, let's talk about this. Let's talk this over. Yeah. That would probably be the best outcome. So yeah. Roseberry, Joel and I vote for a beer summit. What do you think? Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system, which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground, but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound. But Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet, and it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. Well, if you've watched YouTube recently, you have noticed that Rosemary's been doing a number of videos on electric vehicles. And she actually took a, a cross-country tour of Australia it, with varying levels of success, uh, mostly to do with recharging of the vehicle. That's a big problem. In the States and in Australia, charging a vehicle can be rather uh, <laughs> a long, drawn-out process. Uh, but there is a couple of developments in the United States where they're talking about putting what I think to be coils in the ground to provide charging to vehicles as they drive over them. And down in, in Utah, uh, there's a firm that's, that's looking at uh, – electrifying a part of the Pennsylvania-Ohio border and then up near Detroit. And there's another uh, 
project that's going on around Walt Disney World in Florida, where they're talking, where they're providing a way for electric vehicles to be charged as they're driving, such that if you think about it, and I think Rosemary had raised a good point about this in one of her videos, that um, how do you pay for the roads? How do you pay for everything else? And in the United States, we pay with the gas tax. Well, once you turn electric, what do you do? Well, maybe the, the state, quote unquote, or the power company starts selling you electricity as you drive. So as you're driving along, you just got a, a rolling tab. <laughs> you just see the, the dollars on your Tesla screen keep increasing as you're charging as you go along. Uh, and initially I thought, oh, okay, this is crazy, right? So you'd have to electrify a substantial amount of the roads. But I don't think they're necessarily aiming for uh, vehicles, passenger vehicles. They're looking to do tractor trailers, long-haul trucks. The batteries are impressive. The batteries are impressive. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine how long it takes to charge up Rosemary's electric vehicle versus a tractor trailer. It could Mm -hmm. take a long time to get to full charge. So do you need to have something in the road to charge these vehicles up? Because if they're making a you know eight or 10 hour run, it's kind of hard to do. Does this make sense? You know, I, I think when I looked at the trucks, when they, this was like a year or two ago, because it's been an ongoing process, just like the cyber truck, right? The, the, the passing, right. the, they, they've been playing around with it for a long time. They had a five or 600 mile range, which is a little bit short of what a semi is right now. Uh, semis right now in the U.S. at least, in the U.S. at least, lorries elsewhere, whatever you want to call them, um, you know, l- loaded loaded, and going across the plains, you might be getting three, four, if you're really lucky or you got a tailwind, five, five and a half miles of the gallon. Um, so if you yeah. kind of equ- equate that back, I mean, that's a lot of fuel you're burning. So it, and if those batteries, now we think about those batteries going five and 600 miles pulling, you know, up to 80,000 pounds or whatever behind them. Right. I yeah. Mean, the battery packs themselves weigh 10,000 pounds. Like they're, sure. you know, they're, they're, they're ridiculous. So the, the idea that you could charge, you'd have to have charging hubs. And we now like with Rosemary's trip across, you know, Australia. And I've, I've, I've read and watched recent um, things of people doing the same thing in the States. If they can get to the uh, level three chargers where they're like, Oh, this is great. It's really quick. But that battery's, you know, the size of my table. A level three charger will still take overnight right. or more to charge <laughs> one of those trucks. So you're going you're gonna to have to have three phase power coming in or something. I don't know, uh, but that's definitely oh, yeah. going to be a challenge. Yeah, how much a big how big of a charger would a tractor trailer require compared to a, a little Tesla four door? Yeah, less? I mean, I've I've seen people talk about <laughs> megawatt uh, chargers, um, you know, Whoa. to get to get fast charging of, of trucks, and yeah, who knows if that's that's going to happen, but. It is a really interesting kind of um, part of the transport decarbonization in a lot of ways. I think it makes the the challenges with passenger cars look very quaint almost, <laughs> you know, like, oh, it's like, oh, it's so cute. You're worried about, you know, yeah. 200 kilowatts versus 500 kilowatts or something like that's that's adorable. Um, and yeah, but for, for, for trucks, it's it's going to be a lot more, but it's also, you know, like a, it's a big, big chunk of the, the problem. Um, the transport, right. uh, you know, moving around of, of stuff that, <laughs> that we currently, uh, uh, moving around in trucks, that's um, there's a lot of emissions to be saved by electrifying that. So um, it's an important problem, and it is one that I talked about. I got a, an expert on the show. He's an Australian guy, works at um, at 
Cambridge University, David Sieben, Professor David Sieben, and he came on Engineering with Rosie for a, a live stream a couple of months ago. And he's actually, I mean, his most of his career has been about, um, you know, heavy transportation, starting with, I think, trains, <laughs> you know, back a long time ago. Um, and he's just recently um, released a, a white paper on decarbonizing uh, trucking in the in yeah in the UK. I think primarily, although he has looked at how it would work around the world, and they looked at all, all different kinds of options for decarbonizing um, the industry and. Um, what they came up with is the best way was catenary charging, or I think a pantograph is another way to call it. It's like, um, you know, electric trams. They have the overhead um, power line and, and connect to it with an arm. And, yeah, they found that if you uh, electrify certain corridors of the highway that you know, a lot of um, trucks go on, um, that it can have a payback period as short as 18 months, apparently. Um, oh, wow. But yeah, so the economics work out. I came away with the impression that the hardest part of it is just <laughs> it's like the it's a really huge upfront cost and then you've got some standardization issues. Um, who who pays for it and how do they recoup their investment? And so I can sure. see it much more likely to work in Europe <laughs> than in um, the US or Australia just because culturally it seems like they're yep. more prepared for governments to, you know, um, you spend a lot of money up front to make something that's going to work over, uh, pay itself back over the years. Mm. Um, and then you combine that, these big hubs, with then um, the, the local deliveries are just with just regular electric trucks that only, you know, need to go 100, 200, 300 Ks between charges and, um, it can kind of all work like that. But, um, yeah, one of the hardest things is going to be to get standardization um, because, you know, if sure. you've got some company that's working on wireless charging over, you know, electrified roads, that's not going to be compatible with overhead charging that, you know, someone else is working on. And so, yeah, again, I think easier, <laughs> easier to do in Europe where they're much more willing to force companies to, you know, adopt standards. Um, you know, I think Europe is is about to be forcing um, iPhones to change over to the USB-C because they're, mm -hmm. you know, that compatibility is, is mandatory there. So, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I can see it happening there. That's cool. More than I, like I, can that see I like that one. I like that one. We that can't one get makes the me plugs. happy. Electrical plugs should be the same. Why would they have the iPhone plugs the same? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like yeah. UK's on 240. Most of the world's on 240. We're on 120. No, the problem is that you can't just use an iPhone with any random charger. You need a special iPhone charger, and that's not okay in Europe. Right. Um, yeah, they, they're not saying. I mean, of course, already um, iPhone is charging off two two twenty volts in uh, exactly. in Europe and Australia. And, well, you know, yeah. right? You go to you go to America and you got this nice, thin, sleek, elegant plug, and then you go to the UK and you got this. Big, well, big, do big not get me started on how terrible the design of the American plugs that were their two parallel teeth that just want to fall out of the wall at any opportunity. <laughs> so the Australian what, what ones are angled. So are you, you, put at? The, you put the plug in and it stays there. Yours are, are parallel and it's it nothing weighs to stop five it. Just pounds, Rosemary. Where else can it go? It's, <laughs> it can't fall out. Gravity won't let it. 
it, they do. Something. They're constantly so much, just they just angle out. So you've thing. got you've got these oh, like the oh. little edges of the um <laughs> of the That's wall outlet are just yeah. sitting there exposed like for someone to stick a fork yeah. on and electrocute themselves. It's why you can only <laughs> have 110 volts because you can't <laughs> you're constantly touching them. So you have to make it safe to touch. Yeah. <laughs> That, that's do, so you can push do, your couch against it okay. and bend it down. That's what those are designed. Guilty as More charged. Room. Yeah, <laughs> two two twenty volts is is better. I mean, come on, you can't you can't you telling me that America has the best the best uh, system yeah, in place there? Yeah, no. sure we do. Well, you know what's what deal with fifty and sixty hertz, right? You know, can we stick to something that's normal like sixty hertz? No, we have to have fifty. Mm. Again, just there's no, just no reason for it. No. So the whole thing about plugs, you're absolutely right. So this is the discussion they should have about electric vehicles because they're having it right now on Tesla versus everybody else, right? Tesla has a different plug and their their Tesla chargers are different than everybody else's. And so you have to have this adapter. So are they going to standardize this stuff or do we do we just go to uh, magnetic coils in the ground and magnetically couple the energy in so that nobody has a connector? So it's connectorless. It's all wireless charging. Yeah, Is but you'll still have a standardization issue because it's not like every wireless um, charging system works with every other one. You, you know, you still have to. True. If, if everybody, because so here's here's one for you that most people don't understand, and I'm sure you guys too. But Wi-Fi, right? Wi-Fi is not a thing; it's a protocol. No. Yeah. Right. So Bluetooth. it's a protocol so that everything can communicate with each other. It's not an actual like hook up to the Wi-Fi. It's actually like calling something Kleenex. When it's actually a facial tissue, right? So if we could get some, if we could get a standard, Wi-Fi is the ultimate standardization story uh, of of the world because yeah. no matter where you it are, probably is. it's yeah the same. Yeah, yeah. Joe, I think you're you're probably so right about that. To, I haven't thought about those that. terms. Yeah, I mean, even pencils are different in the UK than America, yeah. right? Some of the simplest things are not the same. Uh, they drive on the wrong side of the road. We drive on the right side of the road. Uh, they're just multiples of of un- unevenness where America has clearly led the way, did you, and yet did you others say, have decided. Did you say r- wrong side and right side? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, yeah. I actually love the UK and Australia is pretty cool too. It, it's just a, it's just that unless there is some standard that's going to be mm-hmm. settled upon, we're all going to have this continual problem yep. that it, it's not interchangeable. So if I want to bring over my my British sports car. EV sports car to America, I may not be able to charge it. That's a huge problem, right? My new mm-hmm. Jaguar, I can't plug it in somewhere. It won't work on the roads in America. That's a big issue. And they're mm-hmm. going to have to find a way to solve it. And some of these early programs about charging electric vehicles are, are awesome. But I think Rosemary is probably right here that ultimately it comes down to compatibility. We can figure out all the other details. It's whether it's going to be compatible worldwide or not. That's yet to be determined. I think we're a long way away from we, worrying about worldwide compatibility. It's compatibility within countries is, is already a big problem. And, I mean, like the Tesla charging yeah. network is already opening up to everybody in, in a lot of parts of Europe, and it could do that because the plug was the same, um, whereas to do the same thing in the U.S., you'll have to physically change all of the the plugs over or provide adapters for a long time and then start making Teslas with a different, um, you know, shape shape hole to shove the plug into. So, um, yeah, I, I think that it's like 
it's better to have standardization. I do think that the the European system is is better, but it does interfere with the you know um, American competitive environment that allows companies a lot of freedom and allows them to get the advantage, which gives the incentive to actually bother to develop these things. So it's um, yeah, it's kind yeah. of it's swings and roundabouts. There's advantages, disadvantages both ways, but um, it's certainly. Yeah, de- definitely going to be a challenge. I mean, how did you get there with you don't have it doesn't matter what kind of um, petrol kind of gas <laughs> powered car you have the you can use the same petrol pump for every single one. Right. Like uh, there must be something that stops, you know, one company right. from Diesels. from saying, you know, oh, you need a you know different different size or a different shape or or something everybody got on board and made yeah. every every car compatible with every service station um so i feel like it's it's within I, our power to solve this problem um yeah i feel like that was a monopoly at the time right sun oil company joel stop me if i'm wrong here because i i probably fell asleep during the history class but sun oil <laughs> pretty much owned all the oil in america at one point uh, so they probably decided what that was. And then when they got broken up, all the divisions probably used, still use the same thing. So maybe what we should do is have Tesla just make all the vehicles and we just be done with it. Maybe that's, there you go. <laughs> that's the answer. There you Elon go. would appreciate that. So would a stock price. <clears throat> yes, my stock share <laughs> yeah. portfolio would appreciate Again, that. Not, 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 SC, <laughs> not SEC advice. Price, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we do not give it. We do not give investment <laughs> advice on this show. Absolutely yeah. not. <laughs> you know, the, the, here's a here's a good one for you. There, standardizing those things. Uh, the only one that's different is in some passenger vehicles that are diesel in the U.S. You can't go to the truck ones because the truck ones are like this big, mm. like the big truck ones, right. and they don't and they just don't yeah. fit. But I believe that you should have like a square or a triangle hole for the diesel ones because I've. I, I have uh, uh, quite a few technician friends that have come over from like the UK or from Europe that are u- yeah. driving rental trucks in the wind industry and they don't know the difference between like, okay, I know that the green pump means diesel usually, or in some states, the yellow pump means diesel, but they just grab one and there's a whole lot of them putting diesel fuel in gas trucks and gas in diesel trucks. Are they the same trucks. size in the US? So we should fix that. Were there different sizes in Australia? So, so you both, can put petrol in a diesel car, but you can't size. put- diesel in a petrol car in australia I, I think that's right you can do you can do you uh, can do both here you can kind of do both yeah it's not easy but you can do both yeah right um okay that's interesting yeah. my mom my mom did it once <laughs> yeah my dad did it yeah, once I, but i'm pretty sure he put yeah, petrol in a diesel truck that he had borrowed um and yeah then you have to get yeah. it pumped out if you realize soon enough <laughs> yeah oh yeah hopefully you realize soon enough <laughs> yeah all right, Rosemary, this is right up your alley. Vertical axis wind turbine, but not the normal vertical axis wind turbine that you complained to me about. This is a cool looking vertical axis wind turbine. It's a flower. It's shaped like a tulip. So it's uh, it's flower turbines, which is now based in Texas. So they chose Lubbock as their home base to make these turbines. And I saw them down in San Antonio and I saw them. I thought they were cool looking. Now, Rosemary informed me like, well, they're super inefficient, right? Well, okay, that's probably true. It doesn't mean they're not cool looking, that they actually fit the decor of the buildings and things that are around. Uh, but they've made, I think it made a really smart decision. They didn't put their factory in a place uh, that was going to be uh, difficult to establish a company. And they, ch- they chose Texas, which is probably one of the easiest places to get a company up and rolling. And they chose Lubbock because that's where Texas Tech is. So they can 
take the resources, the people coming out of Texas Tech who are um, engineers and bring them on over. So they have a, a ready-made engineering system, a technical system to work with then. And it's going ahead. In fact, they've they sold a one of their wind turbines to the band Coldplay. And I know we all love Coldplay, right? So that 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 is pretty cool. That had to be a, a pretty hard thing to do. So the Coldplay is taking the wind turbine on tour to help reduce the emissions. So I don't know if it's on top of a tour bus or is it set on a pole? I'm not, not sure what they're doing, but that that's a pretty cool, good way of actually introducing your technology to the world is to hook it up with one of the probably one of the most world famous bands that is out there promoting clean energy. Uh, but the, the capacity of these things is not very big, right? So the largest wind turbine they make is about a three to five kilowatt machine. So it's, it's not, we're not talking megawatts here, everybody. We're talking kilowatts. So it's, it's more of a place, uh, a wind turbine for a home or a small business. But Rosemary, why is, why is this, uh, you know, not top of the heap in terms of wind turbines for buildings? It seems like it's a really kind of cool looking design. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, they look, they look, I guess some people would say that they look nicer than a normal wind turbine. Um, but <laughs> the question I would ask is, do they look nicer than not having anything there at all? Because that's roughly how much electricity that they generate. I mean, Coldplay taking one of these around with them. How, how big is it? I'm just on the website now. You can get five of their small size wind turbines, which have one meter high blades, um, and they make it six meters per second wind, which is which is pretty windy. Definitely, definitely above the average of pr- pretty much anywhere people live um, in the the US at a ten meter height above the ground. You can expect twenty five to fifty watts um, from the set of five. So you know, let's say Coldplay are bringing that around and <laughs> generating twenty five watts. I mean the it's not emissions free to drag something like this around with them on tour i i bet if someone did a life cycle analysis they would find that they're emitting more for having this wind turbine than for not having it um and uh, i i don't know that that's helpful for i mean it might be nice it makes them feel nice that they're that they're green but it also kind of makes it seem like this is the kind of scale of solution that we need for the energy transition and it's absolutely ridiculous i mean 25 watts is nothing at all um so yeah i mean i don't see a lot of place for turbines like this a lot of point in them beyond feeling smug that you have a wind turbine on your house for like literally no reason um i did make a whole video about why uh, i think i called it rooftop renewables so you know why solar power makes a lot of sense on roofs and why um, wind energy doesn't and it's basically to to do with the the wind resource that you're accessing compared to the solar resource that you're accessing. So you know, solar power is roughly the same intensity whether you're on a roof or in a nearby um, solar farm. Whereas wind energy really depends uh, that the amount of energy in the wind depends on the cube of the wind speed, and the wind is a lot slower close to the ground, and it's a lot slower in urban areas than it is in um, you know in open open undeveloped areas. So you end up, you know, with if you've got half the the wind speed, then you end up with one eighth of the power. Um, and so it's just not cost effective to put wind turbines in in places where there's not a good wind resource. And um, yeah, people 
don't live in places with good wind resources and they don't want to put their turbine up on a 50, 100 metre tower in their backyard and their, you know, neighbours probably don't want that either. So, um, yeah, I, I do wish that. Is there a place for a small wind though? There is. Yeah, there's a place for small wind. Talk about this before about it's for people who, who who are off grid. Um, They they can't or desperately don't want to connect to the electricity grid. So then you can get a lot more um, reliability from having a combination of wind and solar. Um, It's for people who do live in good wind areas. So, you know, like on the west coast of Jutland in Denmark, um, there's a lot of farms there that have great wind speeds and they they have, it's so common to see small wind turbines there. And I talked with a few farmers and they absolutely love them because they just are economic and they're, um, you know, they're they're providing pretty reliable power, you know, decent amount. A lot bigger than um, mm-hmm. these ones you're seeing, and they're of the traditional um, horizontal axis type, or you know, variations on that theme. So you know, they're making twice as much energy for the same swept area as um, one of these flower ones would. Um, and yeah, those are basically the two the two places. I think because uh, I, <laughs> I've made this video, and I always try my hardest not to be too negative about what I'm talking about. And so I did come up with a bunch of places where I think that small wind or rooftop wind makes sense. And it was those two, um, yeah, for, for off-grid or where you have a good wind resource. And then also for where you want to look cool and inspire people. That was the other one I came up with. I mean, there's some, you know, nice sky, Cold, the cold play. skyscrapers <laughs> cold that play, have yeah. been designed yeah. to, you know, funnel wind up to some turbines. And I mean, they look, they look cool. They're cool out there buildings. They're supposed to, you know, like promote a vision of the future and inspire people. The primary goal is not to make a lot of electricity. And if Coldplay are honest that their primary goal is not to offset any meaningful amount of their emissions, then maybe that's the same same thing. They're letting people know, hey, wind energy exists maybe because should- maybe people are showing up to his concerts that didn't know that there's energy available in the wind. M- maybe there's something there. But if they <laughs> yeah, maybe. If they were serious, if they're serious about it, they would play acoustically. <laughs> Well, you could count out the Coldplay <laughs> tour of Australia. That just got scratched off the calendar for sure. That whole week is. I mean, if they would gone. get an electric, you know, to come to America, tour bus would would be a much better contribution. I would suggest. Um, and yeah, I mean, there there would be a lot. You think they're flying it? You think they're riding a tour bus, Rosemary? Really? Do you think they're riding around in a bus? Wouldn't you? We're talking about Coldplay yeah, but here. Isn't that a lot nicer than packing everything up and getting on planes every day? Uh, if you your stops are close enough, no. I think that's more no. pleasant. No, no. Uh, if I had, mm. to, if James Brown set the bar back in the 1970s, and he took a Learjet, right? James Brown, if if the Godfather of Soul is taking a Learjet, then you better be sure that Coldplay is flying from place to well, place. Well, Coldplay are packing an electric bus. All their gear, their gear is on trucks, so. though. Okay, gear, at least yeah, the wind absolutely. turbine is traveling by truck. I, I hope that that's true, because if they're packing that up yeah. to put it on a Learjet, then I would say that's a pretty pretty clear-cut case of greenwashing. Um, yeah, I will ad- admit Coldplay is not yeah. my favorite my favorite band anyway, um, but... <laughs> I will admit that Coldplay is awesome and they should come to America. If they happen to come to Boston, I'm going to go see them. So if you can just cancel the whole Australia tour date and come to the Northeast where you can sell some tickets and we think wind turbines are cool. 
And if they've got something to say, they can come on the podcast. They can come we, on we the would podcast. Love that. Yeah. And if they want so, someone that can help so, them go through their tour emissions and find meaningful ways to reduce that, um, that uh, then I can also help them help them with that. I help them find someone to do that for them. Because, uh, they may have done that in go. addition. Uh, let's give them the Maybe benefit what? of the doubt. They did that. They went through. They reduced emissions as, as much as possible, and then added this turbine so that it was, you know, they had something that people would write an article about and talk about, um, you know, sustainability. It, Maybe it's okay. I don't know. I don't follow Coldplay in the news, so I didn't know about it until you told me, Alan. But while they're riding in their electric bus, they need to get on YouTube and watch Engineering with Rosie to kill the time and to learn about renewable energy. Maybe that's what they need to do. Yeah. So I would say to share something with the listeners as well, the biggest model that they have, the blades are 16-ish feet high, and that's 3 to 5 kilowatts. So 3 to 5 kilowatts is – the size of basically a, a small gas generator that you yeah. may you see on a construction site or something like that. Or like if we're talking to blade techs around here, the same generator that runs your 360 degree platforms up and down is how much power the sink can create. Yeah, except that. And you know, if you run two saws at the same time, so it'll pop the breaker. <laughs> except that that's their, their rated <laughs> oh, wind sorry, speed, but it also says, yeah, it's a five kilowatt turbine. You can expect one kilowatt hour per hour, which makes it, sound like they've potentially yeah. oversized their generator. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. And be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to the Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, and subscribe to Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosemary. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. 